So about six or seven years ago, uh, Christina and I, for our first couple years of marriage, we had this TV that was about 32 inches big, so it was tiny. And I decided it was time for an upgrade. And so I did all this research, and it was the last year that they were making plasma TVs. And so I decided I want to get one. I was trying to figure out why. seems like the big reason was just the profit margin for LCDs and LEDs was a lot higher than plasma TVs. And so Samsung was coming out with their last model. So I decided I was going to get a 55-inch Samsung plasma TV. Uh, and so I look all this information up, and then I go to Costco. We were members of Costco at the time, and I found out on their website uh, that they had, didn't have the 55-inch TV, but they had the 60-inch TV, and it was cheaper than the 55-inch anywhere else. And so we all know with TVs, bigger is obviously better. And so I was like, I'm going to get this TV. I was super excited about it. It was a Saturday night. Um, and so I put it in my card as I'm putting my credit card information, and right before I hit submit, I was like, you know, you know, we lived in an apartment at a time, and the plasmas are big, and they're heavy, and so instead of, you know, them shipping it to the, you know, the front desk, and then I got to lug it into my apartment, why don't I just go to Costco tomorrow and buy it in person? <clears throat> and so I decide to wait. Uh, the next day I wake up, uh, we go to church, I come home, I watch the Panthers probably lose, and then I go to Costco. So I drive out to Costco, and I walk in, I ask one of the people if they had this specific TV, and she said they didn't. And, you know, they don't, the online is different than the store, so you have to order it online. They couldn't do it for you there, so I'm like, no problem. Um, I go home, and I uh, pull up, up Costco.com, go in there, put all the information in, and when I go to hit submit, it says, out of stock. And I'm like, That's, this cannot be happening right now. <laughs> Luckily for me, I'm one of, I used to be one of those people that had like 15 browsers open at one time, like 15 tabs, you know, and I still had the tab open of it in my shopping cart from the night before. No joke. I still had it. And so I put my information again. There, hit submit. It refreshes, and it says, out of stock. And so I go from being bummed or from being excited about this thing to be really bummed. And so I, I was looking again online the next couple of days, and it was a 55-inch available everywhere else, and it was more expensive, and I was really bummed. I even, like, went into the store of, like, Walmart or Best Buy, and then it hit me. H.H. Uh, Gregg, if you remember, was in Briar Creek, and it was a type of store that you never actually would go into because uh, it's, like, appliances, and they would hound you and try to sell everything for you. And I was like, well, I think they price match, so let me just go in and see if they have it. Uh, so I walk in, like the half second I'm in the door, they're like on top of me. I'm like, no, I'm just looking. And I go to the back, and there it is in all of her beauty, the 60-inch <laughs> plasma TV. And so again, about two seconds later, another employee is like on top of me asking if they can help. And uh, so I said, you guys price match, right? And they're like, yeah, if it's like a legitimate place. And so I pulled up Costco's website. Even though it was out of stock, it was still on their website. And so I got the TV for the same price. Yeah, thank you. Right? It was awesome. In fact, I had to come back a couple days later because I guess they had to have it ship it in. Uh, so I go to pick it up, and they actually took the display one off the TV. So for all we know, I could have bought the last one in all of the United States of America. I don't know, right? But I share that story because I was excited. I was hope-filled. Uh, then I was kind of bummed. And then I, my hope returned to me when I got the thing that I actually wanted. And that's uh, similar to what we're going to see today as we continue our series through 1 Thessalonians. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it and flip to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If not, there's a black one around it. You can read along uh, with us. Uh, up until this point, really most of the letter up until now has been talking about Paul's got this theme that if we're going to follow Jesus, it impacts how we live. Right? Last week, he actually gave us a practical example because in theory, we all love how that sounds until we actually have to do it. And so we talked about sex and sexual immorality and honoring other people above ourselves. And now to close the letter, he's going to turn things a little bit. However, as we'll see, I think they're more related than we would have thought otherwise. And so here's what's happening here. Uh, before we read uh, this passage, I just want to remind us uh, that this is a letter. So there are many letters in the New Testament. Uh, and letters, the thing about letters 
that Paul is addressing a certain uh, contextual concerns or certain questions that we don't know. Right? And so we can study history and study the letter and try to figure out what exactly he's addressing, but we don't exactly know the specific question or sometimes the specific uh, circumstance that is causing him to write the things that he is writing. And so one of the best ways to, to think about this is it's kind of like if you're sitting next to somebody, maybe your spouse or your friend or a roommate, and they get a phone call, right? You don't know what the person on the other side of the phone is saying, but by listening to what your friend is saying, you can try to try to put the pieces together and try to figure out what's going on. Uh, that's kind of what happens with these letters. We don't know everything that's happening. And so from reading these letters, we try to piece together what exactly he might be addressing. And so today, we're going to see that clearly the church in Thessalonica, uh, there was worry or anxiety about the believers who died. So the followers of Jesus, again, this is around 50 AD, were, were, uh, had apparently expressed some concern about what happens to those who had died before Jesus returned, right? Would they take place and Jesus, when Jesus recreates his kingdom, would they be there? Would they be missing out? There's something going on that they are concerned about. And so we're not exactly sure what it is, but it has something to do with the fact of Jesus's return and how believers who have already died would participate in that. And so that being said, here we go. Chapter four, verses 13, it says this. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no Hope. So the believers are grieving that people had passed away and who had died. Uh, Paul and many New Testament authors uh, talk about who believers who have died, uh, he, they, ref, they uh, uh, refer, refer, refer to them as asleep. And it's this idea that when Jesus returns, right, our physical bodies will reawaken and we will take part in God's recreation of the new heavens and the new earth at Jesus's second coming. And so the problem here is not that the believers are grieving that people had passed away. That's not the problem at all. The problem is that they are grieving like people who don't have a hope and faith in Jesus and what he has accomplished. In other words, they're grieving, but they're grieving like a people who have no hope. Uh, maybe give you an example of, of, of what this brought to my mind. Uh, a couple years ago, if you're not familiar with football, you'll, uh, you'll understand this is the best example I could think of. Uh, the, the New England Patriots and Tom Brady have won six Super Bowls in like I don't know, 15 years or 18 years, something like that, which is crazy, especially in the NFL when you have such high turnover. Players get injured all the time. There's so many players. Uh, and so uh, I remember after their fifth Super Bowl, this was, uh, I looked it up last night. This was 2018. So 2017, they won their fifth Super Bowl. 2018, they played the Philadelphia Eagles, and they lost a really close game, right? Now, it makes sense that you're upset if your team loses, right? That's not surprising. But I remember watching this video of this guy after his team, after the Patriots lost to the Eagles, taking a bat and smashing his TV. And this was not no Costco TV either. This thing was nice and it was large. And he's like smashing it with a bat and it like falls over and completely ruins it, right? And I remember watching this guy. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Your team has won five Super Bowls. You won the last Super Bowl. You still have Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And of course, they actually made the Super Bowl the next year and won it again. Right? I'm like, this doesn't make sense, right? It would make more sense if maybe you had a Cinderella team who is not any good and is not going to be any good last year, the next year. And so you're upset, right, that your team lost. But he's going crazy, even though he has a team that's like always good. They're always good. So I'm like, what are you doing, right? And I think that's kind of what Paul is saying here is not that there's uh, any problem with being upset. And in fact, we should grieve the death of loved ones. But if you're a follower of Jesus, there is a hope that you and I have that should make our grief perhaps look a little different. And so the question then becomes, what gives us the hope that our grief should look differently? And here's what he says in verse 14. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
In the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what he's saying here is that because Christ physically resurrected from the cross, his death, burial, and his resurrection, all will be with him when he returns. When Christ comes back, those who are in Christ, just like Jesus' body resurrected, uh, will be resurrected. We will have physical bodies in God's new creation. And so Christians here should not have the same pessimistic view of death uh, of any culture, particularly in their first century context. And, you know, what's also interesting is sometimes people... Um, kind of maybe display an ignorance of what was going on in first century Rome, where they talk about the resurrection, right? And for us, like resurrection is kind of cool, especially in our day and age where like we want to be young forever. We want to live forever. Like the fact of like not dying and enjoying things on earth is like what we really want. But in most of the ancient world throughout human history, and particularly in first century Rome, uh, the body is not something that you wanted to stay in. Right? The soul was kind of, it was, the popular understanding is like your soul was kind of trapped into your body. And when, you're die, when you die, your soul is free. And so for the believers to say Jesus resurrected from the grave, although that might score us cool points today, and you might see like a bunch of TikTok videos and Instagram of like, hey, this person was dead, now they're alive. In the first century, they would have been like, why would you want to do that? But it's not something that you would kind of make up just for fun. And what he's saying is because Jesus actually did this, we have hope. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it'll be on the screen. Really, the whole chapter is about this, but in chapter 12, or sorry, verse 12 through 14, he's, Paul here again is talking about Jesus' resurrection. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. You know, one of the interesting things uh, about the New Testament is that Paul, even Peter in his letters, they, they address this kind, of, uh, this kind of contention of like, well, you know, the believers just kind of made Jesus' resurrection up after the fact to kind of give credence to their message. And yet what Paul, what Paul is saying here is that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then we're wasting our time. Then we are fools, right? Now, like, let's make it real for us. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, all of you are wasting your time by being here this morning. I am in the wrong job. Right? If you give to New City Church, you are literally wasting your resources. If you serve in any capacity, you are wasting your time if Christ did not raise from the dead. But if he did, but if he did, then this changes everything for us. And what Paul is getting at is that this is not some feel-good mythology. Right? Christ either raised from the dead or he didn't. But if he did, then look at this hope that this is not the end, that there is grace and peace for us, uh, that there is a future for us that is unimaginably better than anything we could ask or imagine, or maybe put it a different way, that no one has more hope than a follower of Christ. I think what Paul is showing us here is that no one has more hope than a follower of Christ. Listen, it's, not, it's just not possible. It is not possible in the midst of our shame and our falling short uh, that, that we actually have the grace and mercy of God, that we actually have something to look forward to because Christ loves us. And so I would present to you this, Ray, right? If Christ did not raise from the dead, or if he did, and yet you are not a follower of Jesus, then I would say you do not have hope. You do not have hope. Because what are you hoping in? A job, a career, a relationship, your health, your financial resources, all of these things are going to pass away. They may feel good in the moments, but they're not like long-term, like real things to anchor your life and your hope in. So apart from Jesus raising from the dead, we may have things to numb our pain and help us get us through life, but we don't have any real hope. 
Right? And so Paul's point here is to remember the hope that you have so that it encourages you to love God and honor him in how you live. Because if you have hope in a thing that actually can deliver what you are hoping it can deliver for you, it changes everything. Right? Like I think of my kids, right? So I have Finley. She's, a six, she's our six-year-old daughter. And she's cute and she's nice and she's compassionate. She is the uh, type of child that makes you look like an awesome parent. You don't have to do anything. She doesn't want to get in trouble. She's sorry if she does. Like, and she'll like tell us when she does things wrong that we never would have found out otherwise, right? I mean, she's just like makes you look awesome, right? And then you have Roman. And Roman's awesome, right? And as you know, if you come here, right, he's awesome. But he is the exact opposite. I mean, he's 100%. He loves to argue. He does not like being told what to do. And so he's kind of got, he kind of is more risk. He's a much uh, bigger risk taker than Finley. And so here's how this plays out. That there are times where Finley can do things, but because she's a little nervous about it or she doesn't have a lot of risk taking-ish stuff in her, she won't do things that she can actually do. And then you have Roman, who is constantly doing things that he cannot do. <laughs> thinking he can do them, right? And so, for example, last year we were at the pool, and Roman was two at the time, Finley was five, and she was kind of nervous of jumping in the water, and Roman just comes up to him, we put, her floaty, we put his floaties on him, he just kind of like falls in. Like he's like, well, go, and not even the steps, like just like into the water, right? And if we didn't put his floaties on, he would have done the same thing, we have to grab him, right? And so like, he can't swim, right? But Finley, who can, right, she saw that, and it pushed her to you know, jump in the pool because her brother did it, right? And so again, he's often trying to do things he cannot do. So a couple weeks ago, this happened in the same way. We have uh, two couches in our living room, and we have this like small little ottoman, right? And so he had pushed the ottoman, and he loves jumping from the ottoman to the couch, and so he was doing that. And then he decides to jump uh, from the ottoman to the other couch, which the ottoman was pushed further away, so it's a couple of feet, right? And for he was small, he couldn't make the jump. And so what he does sometimes when it's too far away from the couch is he'll put a pillow on the floor, and he'll, he'll jump on the pillow and then jump onto the couch so that his feet don't touch the lava, or as he calls it, lava. The floor is lava, and if he doesn't have his lava boots on, he can't touch it. And so he was doing this, and he was, he was landing on the pillow, but his like, stomach was like landing on the couch, right? He kept doing it, and then I could, I could see it in his eye. He says, Daddy, watch this. And I say, Roman, before he did, I'm like, you can't make this jump. I know what he's thinking. I'm like, buddy, you can't make this jump. And so what does he do? He tries to make the jump anyway. And so instead of like putting his feet on the pillow, right, he tries to jump the whole way and he smacks his cheek like right under the cushion on the side of the couch where it's hard. And so it's red and he's crying, right, because he's trying to do something that he can't do, right? And, it, you know, and so like I just, I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Like you and I have hope, but the question is, can our hope do for us what we are hoping that it can do? Now, here's why I would also say that this actually has a lot to do with what Paul has been talking about up until this point. And here's why. That an increase in hope, or put it this way, an increase in hope will cause an increase in holiness. So up until this point, one of the main themes of 1 Thessalonians is that if you are a follower of Jesus, it should impact how you live. That we should pursue holiness. And holiness just, or to be holy just means to be set apart. That we don't pursue the things of the world, that, but we pursue Jesus and his promises. And then when we fall short, we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so the aim of 1 Thessalonians is to encourage believers to actually live out their faith. And so what Paul is doing here is if what he is saying is true, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then this encourages us to actually want to experience Jesus more, right? Because if it actually matters, if we actually want to grow closer to Jesus, if we want to experience more of his promises and his grace in our life, if the resurrection is a reality, then it actually gives us the hope to live a certain way so that we can experience more of him. 
Right? Again, I think of it this way. As, as you guys know, as I've been sharing, a couple months ago, I got into woodworking, right? And I'm like all in. Like I bought all the tools and I bought this online course and I, and I really like it, right? But it was interesting to me as I was, a couple months ago, as I was getting into it, I was trying to Google and YouTube like beginning woodworking, right? And first of all, I'm like, do you guys know what beginning means? Because they're saying all these words that I don't understand, which is fine, but you got to explain what they are because I don't know what you're doing, right? And so I would watch these videos and I would literally stop them because I'm like, I can't do this. I'm never going to be able to do this. It's too complicated. I don't know what's going on, right? I had no hope that I could actually make any of the things that I was watching. And so I was like, I'm not even going to try. Now, fast forward a few months, like I said, I've been going through this online course and doing other things. And so now I'm watching these uh, beginning woodworking videos just for fun, like beginning projects. And I understand about 80% of it. Um, I don't necessarily know that I can build all the stuff that I'm watching, but at least I can track with most of it, right? And so when I watch it, I'm like, oh, maybe I can actually do this. And so it gives me the encouragement to actually try because I have the hope that I can actually do it to some degree. And I think what's, what's what Paul is getting at here, that if we actually increase our hope and set our eyes on Jesus and who he is, it will cause an increase of holiness in our life because we want to experience more of who he is. And so we'll continue on. And then he says this in verse 15 through 17. He writes this. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. So what he's gonna, what, what's coming next is from the word of the Lord, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, everything that he's saying, Jesus has talked about uh, previously. And so none of these things he's like making up or he didn't have like this special revelation from God. He's just reiterating to them what Jesus taught when Jesus was on the earth. And here's what he says, verse 15. Uh, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming, when Jesus returns a second time, uh, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Uh, and so, again, we don't exactly know the specific issue that the, Thessalon the Thessalonians were anxious about or worried about, but Paul is writing to them to encourage them that those who are alive when Christ returns won't partake in anything that those who are dead won't. And so maybe they were worried that if they died before Christ returned that you, wouldn't, you would miss out on the kingdom of God, or maybe they were worried that when Jesus returns, like the grandeur of it all would only be experienced by those who are currently alive, and then those who are dead will be raised to participate in what is going on here. And so what he's saying here is, that this is not true. Dead or alive in Christ returns, all of us will see and take place and take part in what Christ is doing. Now, uh, that being said, this passage right here is what I would call uh, one of the most popularly misunderstood passages in the New Testament. And what I mean by that is maybe you're not familiar with this particular text, but you have probably undoubtedly heard things or heard uh, teachings about the end times and Jesus' return that comes from this text and that I would submit to you is not what Paul is actually saying when he's talking about Christ returning and us meeting with him in the, in the clouds. And so the question again is, what does Paul mean by this? Right? Again, it's hard to exactly know, but here's what we do know, is that biblical authors often use imagery to portray difficult concepts for us to understand in our current finite minds, and that is what Paul is doing here. And so uh, I would submit this to you, then I'm going to explain it, that Jesus coming down from the sky and us kind of like zapping up to the sky, if you're a believer, uh, to meet him there is not what Paul is saying here. 
That's not what Paul is saying here. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you can stick with me for about four minutes, this is a little bit technical, uh, but I think it'll help us understand how to, when we come across imagery in the Bible, that it's not some like Goldilocks, only the really smart people can comprehend it. But oftentimes, if you come across imagery in the Bible in Thessalonians, as in Revelation or otherwise, then what you need to do is you need to see, okay, what other places in Scripture have used this same imagery to help give you an understanding of what's going on? So let me give you an example from Revelation, and then I'll show you how this applies the first Thessalonians. So if you stick with me just for a few minutes, I think you'll be, uh, you might find this interesting. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, to be on the screen. Um, Revelation 6 is, again, John is talking about the return of Jesus and what it's going to look like. And he says this in verse 14. He says, the sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. So what's happening here is that John is referring to the kind of the end of the cosmos, the end of the created universe as we currently know it, and he used this analogy. It's kind of like, a, it's like an analogy of a stage curtain, right, that, that gets pulled and, and opens up, and, then it, and, it, and it displays the characters that were behind the screen that you and I couldn't see until it was revealed, until it was opened. And so however this actually happens, what John is saying is that the present physical reality that you and I currently live in and dwell in will disappear, and the heavenly dimension quite Christ dwells will be revealed. And so here's what this looks like. Um, this is not like Jesus will repeat, will appear on top of like, like New York City or Hong Kong or Berlin or like Antarctica. Like what if Jesus returns in Antarctica and nobody's there and nobody sees it? Like what are we going to do here, right? He's not saying that Jesus is going to return to a specific geographical place, right? Again, also, you know, the fact that we live on a globe could make that difficult. Um, but even if we, even if the earth was flat, it still wouldn't matter because unless you're literally right there, how are you going to see and, and know that Jesus has actually Returned. And so that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the present uh, dimensions and the realities that you and I currently see and live with uh, and understand will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest for all of us to see, no matter where you live or what you are doing. Again, how is this possible in our current geographical reality? I don't, I don't really know, but we do know that this new dimension where Christ returns will somehow be different. And so here's what this means, that the resurrection from the dead should not be understood as a physical uprising towards the sky. Like those who are dead and those who are on the earth who believe in Jesus will like zap up into the sky and will kind of disappear from everyone else's view. But instead, uh, it, should, it should be looked at rather as like a transformation of the old world or our current world, where our bodies and our new creations will then be transformed to inhabit this new creation, where God's presence will, will reside forever. And so it will be a physical place but it will be different than what we see now. And you see this even in Jesus' resurrection, right? After Jesus was, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, nobody uh, could recognize him, right? Nobody knew who he was until he told them, and then all of a sudden things made sense. And so there is something different about Jesus' physical body, his resurrected body, than before he died on the cross. Uh, we even see that Jesus walks through walls. That's pretty sweet, right? I mean, I think that's pretty sweet, right? And, and we, we have no indication that he did that before he was died and before he died and resurrected. And so all that to say that there is figurative language to try to explain to us something that might be difficult to understand. Uh, we also see this in the shout or the trumpet call of God, which it talks about in 1 Thessalonians and other places throughout Scripture. Uh, even in Revelation itself, it talks about the blowing of the trumpets. And then if you're somewhat familiar with the book, you have like the seven seals and the seven bowls. You have all these things happen after a trumpet is blown. You even see this in the Old Testament, where, where God's voice is like a trumpet. What it's not saying is that whenever God speaks, someone runs out and blows a trumpet to get everyone's attention. 
It's not like a literal trumpet like appears from the sky. What it's saying is God, God's voice is like a trumpet. It's loud and it garners our attention. It is his powerful voice. And so that is what's happening in 1 Thessalonians. It talks about the trumpet. Not that someone's going to blow a trumpet, but that God's voice is powerful. Oh, we also see this in verse 17 when it says, Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord. Uh, and so I would, I would submit to you here that cloud is not supposed to be viewed as a rain cloud. It's not like we go to the clouds because, again, depending on where you are in the globe, what if it's sunny? Or what if this cloud's over here and you're over here like, how do we get to the right cloud? How are we going to get? I don't know, right? Instead, the question is, uh, throughout the Bible, does it talk about clouds anywhere? And the answer to that is, yes, throughout Scripture, God's presence is consistently or often referred to as a cloud or the cloud of glory. If you were with us, we went through Exodus, the cloud of glory, uh, glory uh, God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle. What he's saying is not that we're going to go to some cloud, but that we're going to go and be with God. We're going to be in his presence. Not that his presence is a cloud, is in a literal cloud, but his presence is there for all of us to see. Or put another way, what we see happening here is that our bodies will be transformed to a new, transformed into new bodily creations, fits for God's recreation. That's, what, that's Paul's main point here. It's not that God comes and then we zap up like, you know, uh, if you're familiar uh, with the Left Behind series and like so if, you're, if you're a believer, you like disappear and everyone else who's not a believer is still here and they have no idea what's happening. That's, I, I would submit to you and the faithful Christians disagree that it's certainly not at all what Paul is talking about here. He's saying all of us, Christian or not, will, will see and experience Christ's return before he judges the living and the dead. And so again, when Paul says in verse 15, that for we say this to you by the word of the Lord, he's saying basically everything I'm telling you, I'm just reminding you. Now, we'll see this next week because we're going to talk about when Jesus is actually going to return. Um, in uh, Matthew chapter 24, is Jesus is all talking about this. And so uh, Timothy, or sorry, Paul here is just kind of echoing what Jesus is saying. But all that to say, here, here's the thrust of, I think, what Paul is getting at, that only Jesus gives us hope. That his return, whatever it's going to look like, his, his glory and presence will be uh, available for everybody to see, no matter where we live here on the earth geographically, no matter if you're dead or currently alive when he returns, all of us will take part in and experience what is happening here. But ultimately what we will see is not only, gives us, not only will he give us hope, but that Jesus will also return. That, that's, that's the main point here, that Jesus will return in the midst of your doubts and your questions uh, and you're not sure what's happening for the Thessalonians to the, other, to the believers who had already died, that Jesus will return. And so we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We don't grieve like those who have no hope because here's the reality, right? All of us have to hope in something. Otherwise, you kind of like go crazy, right? We all have to hope in something. So the question is whether or not what we hope in can give us what we actually want it to give us. So uh, for example, uh, on Twitter last year, this guy asked this question, like, what gives you hope, right? And so you got a lot of examples. And so I want to show you some of the examples from this Twitter thread. Before I do, I just want to maybe say this. Like, this is not me trying to denigrate or make fun of anybody, right? This is just what happens when we ask what gives us hope. We often say things that sound nice on the surface, but then we have to question, like, do these things actually do for us what we want them to do? And so there's a lot of responses. Here's a couple of them. Here's the first one. In the response to what gives us hope, uh, somebody says, there are 12 sets of footprints on the surface of the moon. That says we can do anything we put our mind to. Now, sure, that's great that there are 12 sets of footprints on the moon. But if you're in the midst of deep suffering and grief, that ain't going to help you. 
right? If, you are in the, if you've lost a job or a loved one, people walking on the moon ain't going to help you. Human progress, as great as it is, and the new inventions that we see is not going to help you. It sounds good, but if you actually go deeper, like how does it actually give you hope for your life? Right? Another person says this. Here's the next one. Uh, the gentle glow of human resi- resilience and the shadows of tragic experiences. Those who have gone through hell seem to become the most authentic people you'll ever meet. They're the ones who help others without warning. Even if they have nothing, they'll give you kindness. I mean, that's great. That, that's awesome that people, not everybody, but many, sometimes many people, if they grieve healthily and grieve well, they can become very kind and compassionate and do things that they would not have done otherwise. And that's great. But if that is what your hope is put in, Again, that's not going to help you. Like, it sounds good, but that's not going to give you what you actually want. Here's another one, uh, number three. I think there's four of them. The optimism of Gen Z, who have little reason to have it. So, great. If, if you want to put your hope in the fact that the younger generation has optimism, that's awesome. But, I mean, if you actually think about that, if that's what you're putting your hope in, that's not going to help you in the times of your greatest need. That's not going to give you what you actually want. Want. And here's the last one, just one more example. They were all like this. I thought this one was kind of funny. Someone said, I bought a couple of sweet potatoes and they are sprouting. They have no earth or water and the leaves get glossier every day. They remind me of the white flowers that grow out of the cracks and pavement. Tenacious, ferocious, unrelenting. Life gives me hope. And uh, great, that's awesome. That in the midst of hard, hard and difficult times, you know, the potatoes are growing. And I'm not like trying to denigrate that, but I'm like, is your hope really in potatoes? Like, it, it's not. Like, if you actually ask somebody, is that what's going to get you through the day? The answer to that is no. And so we've got to put our hope in something that can actually do for us that, what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is what Paul is getting at here. And so he closes with this for chapter 4, the last thing we'll read today. It says this in verse 18, all that to say. He says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, Paul's point is that we should encourage one another in this. When we forget, uh, when we're in times of hopelessness and despair, we remind each other that God loves us, um, that this is not the end, that we have a hope that is greater than anything we could ask or imagine. And so we do need to grieve. Let me be clear. We do need to grieve. I've shared this before, but I, you know, when I was 19 years old, I lost my dad to um, a suicide. And so situations like that and just what I do uh, you know, today and hearing people sharing their stories with me because I've gone through something difficult. I remember especially the first year after my dad died, people telling me stuff about really horrific things that they had gone through. And I remember thinking some of these people uh, have seemed to have grieved well and not, had, not moved on, but moved forward with their pain. Um, and then other people would talk, as they were explaining things to me that had happened to them decades before, it was like it happened yesterday, right? And, I, and as I went through my own grieving process, I realized that certain people that grieve well, it stays with them. Again, it's not something that you move on from, but you move forward with. And so you can talk about it in a healthy way. And then those of us that, that go through hard things and we suppress it and we do not grieve, well, that's not good for us. And so we should grieve. But Paul's point is that we grieve knowing this isn't the end. And that's radically different. I mean, if you've been to a, a funerals for people who know Jesus versus people who may not know Jesus, or people who know Jesus, they grieve and they cry, but they have hope that this is not the end because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Or put another way, what Paul is saying here is that only Jesus gives us hope. That's what he's saying. Only Jesus gives us hope. Right? And this is the good news of the gospel, that while we were dead in our sins, what did Christ do? He died for us, not because we earned it or because we did a lot of good things. And so he said, okay, now you're good enough to be welcome into my kingdom. But while we were sinners and far from him, he gave his life for us. 
so that we can experience the grace and mercy of God. And so if you are here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus, you need to know right where you are that God loves you and that he cares for you. And he's not, asking, he's not expecting you to act a certain way before you can experience his grace. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus this morning, we need to remember the hope that we have that in the midst of difficulties and darkness and tragedy uh, and grief, that we have a hope that's greater than all of these things, right? And maybe to put it this way, maybe you've heard the phrase that those who are, how's it go, heavenly minded are no earthly good. And it's this idea that like, if you just think about like heaven and God's kingdom, then you're not going to be any good here. Um, I've actually found that that's not true. That's not true. Those of us that are reminded of God's goodness and the kingdom of God that we get to inhabit when Christ returns motivates us to love people so that as many people as possible can experience God's grace and his forgiveness. So here's what I want to do. I want to read one more thing for you. Revelation 21. 20, Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. I'm just going to read you seven verses of Revelation 21. So you're like, oh gosh, he's going to read two, two chapters. I'm not going to do that. But these last two chapters are all about this new creation. I just want to read this to you. And I just want you to think, does this give you hope? Does this give you hope? It's going to be awesome. Here's what it says. John says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from, uh, out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things had passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the waters of life, and the one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I don't know about you, but this sounds pretty awesome, right? And how do we do this? By trusting and believing in Jesus. Again, only Jesus gives us hope. You trying really hard and being a great person does not deliver this for you. God delivers this for you. And so we trust and we follow him, that we put our hope in someone who actually can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Paul here is encouraging the Thessalonians in the midst of their grief of their family and their friends who have died, that this is not the end. Whether you are alive or not alive when Jesus returns, which we'll talk about next week, so that'll be fun. It doesn't matter that all of us get to experience the grace and mercy and the power and the majesty of God. And you and I get to gain entrance into God's kingdom, not because of what we have done, by trusting his grace and mercy on our behalf. Only Jesus gives us hope. And that is what Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians with.